Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Oh boy, this is going to be a fun hour. You're uh, just in time for Guy Talk. I hope your day's been well, and I hope you're, uh, it's starting to warm up in the Twin Cities, so I cannot wait for that. The power panel today is Dr. Peter Kapsner and Justin Jepson, Pastor Justin Jepson, 007. And we're going to have a great time today, so let us know what questions or issues you have. Again, that number is 877-933-2484. Uh, throw anything at us you like, and we'll see what sticks to the wall. We'll take 60 seconds and start guy talk. If you're new to Faith Radio, welcome. We're a media ministry of the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Connecting faith to life is our focus every day, bringing you relevant Bible preaching, family-focused teaching, and compelling conversations to encourage and inspire you in your faith journey. Fresh content and show podcasts are available every day online at our website, so visit us at myfaithradio.com. Faith sees the impossible and lets go of control. It hears the distractions and refocuses. It absorbs the heartache and praises anyway. During this Black History Month, we hope you can honor more than someone's achievements. We hope you can embrace the strength of their character, the unmoving, sustaining nature of faith. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. Talk. Got Dr. Peter Kapsner and Pastor Justin Jepson. The Toms are out of town, or Tom Paris is having foot surgery today. How about that? Yeah, that's not, I mean, that's not something I'd want to be doing today. No. I'd much rather be around the table with you two. Isn't that the truth? Indeed. Yeah. yeah. That's true. So, Justin, my condolences. I recently heard that you have um, your grandmother passed on. She did, yeah. Yesterday, last Wednesday, okay. um, she went home to be with the Lord. Uh, she's 88 years old and had a battle with some form of undiagnosed cancer. Mm -hmm. And you were the blessed recipient of something very precious to her. Do tell our listeners about that. (sighs) Yeah. So um, uh, my Nana loved, well, I call her Nana. So that's, that's my grandma Nana. So she um, had a big, thick uh, NLT application study Bible (laughs) that my mom gifted Mm -hmm. to me this last uh, Sunday. And um, it, (laughs) My Nana saved everything. She was a pack rat. So I remember as a kid, she'd have, she would have little uh, post-it notes everywhere. Cupboards, counter, remember this, do this, remember that, <laughs> list everywhere. And so that that was her Bible. I mean, there's notes of everything, uh, every bookmark, every message she heard, and, um, and notes in the margins, literally pages, uh, whole books of the Bible that have, the pages have fallen out that she has paper clipped together and tucked back in there. So it's hard to open it without things 
like it's like a it's like a jam packed closet is how I <laughs> but I loved it because something mm-hmm. falls out and I actually was looking at it this this a couple couple days ago and I came across a little half sheet of paper and I I, I looked familiar and it looked like it was kind of like a message for a sermon outline and I flipped it over and it was actually the message notes of a sermon that I preached uh, the last sermon that I preached right before I left uh, the church that I was at to come to Northwestern and I mm-hmm. just I lost it. Mm. So, and then she wrote a little note to herself in the oh, in the front of the Bible, didn't she? Which I think is just adorable. <laughs> she did. So you know, in the front of a Bible, it says "from" and "to," and then there's like you know comments. So um, I, it was in 2000, and she wrote the. It was on Christmas. It was her Christmas present to herself, and it was from me uh, to me. And then in, in the "to me" in parentheses, uh, it was God's beloved daughter. Mm. Mm. I don't know your oh. Nana, but I could start bawling right now. I know. Oh, yeah. So yeah. sweet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to, yeah. yeah. choked up here pretty soon, too. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Justin, when you tell that story, just think about how in the Bible it so often defines things that that are good within God's kingdom, that good is defined by that which ripples out into future generations. It's not just maybe the good we do in the moment, but it's the recognition that a little thing that we might do and how it just ripples out and ripples out. And now it's not even just for you, but your grandkids, like your Nana will live on, right? Mm-hmm. This is that that Hebrews 10 passage that says that Abel, though dead, still speaks, that, that mm-hmm. our lives live on in that way. And, and it's right. an incredible gift that she's given. Yeah. And my, my last time that I was with her a few days before she passed away, we were, I was just reading through scripture with her. And um, I had my two and a half year old son next to me. And um, we were reading through, read Psalm 145 through Psalm 150. Mm-hmm. And it was, as you know, that's the crescendo of praise. But it, at the last line is let everything that has breath. Ugh. Praise the Lord. And that's my last, <laughs> oh, I know. that's my last memory um, oh, with her, boy. <clears throat> was praising <clears throat> the Lord. Mm. So, mm. And she's doing that now more than ever. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Sharing. No, thank Just you lovely. For, yeah. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's a question that's already come in from a listener. Studying Joshua chapters three and four this week, is there any relation or significance of the stones taken from the middle of the Jordan River? And the fact that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's just say yes. That we don't go, really know hmm. for sure what that is. Yeah, indeed. It's a tough question. I, wouldn't, well, I don't know how to answer it that. Is, what I appreciate about the question is that uh, the Bible does function with uh, themes all the way through. And mm-hmm. we were just actually, before we got on air here, we were noticing we were sort of doing this Bible sword dr- drill thing. Do we know any passages from Obadiah, for example, mm-hmm. or Nahum, or some of these more obscure books? And we opened up one of them and saw a phrase, cleft of the rock. And immediately it called to mind that Moses had been hid in the cleft of the rock. And what I love about the scriptures is that, yeah, I would love to understand what that uh, Jordan passage, Jordan River passage is in terms of the patterns and the connections. But clearly the biblical authors understood the connections and they pulled on those connections and they pulled on those themes. And there's these beautiful themes woven all the way throughout the text. And one of my favorite ones is that at the end of Genesis 3, the the man and the woman is exiled from the Garden of Eden and specifically from the Tree of Life. They are banned from eating from the Tree of Life. And then you trace this beautiful theme all throughout the text that the very last chapter in the Bible is along the lines of, and now the way is open again to the Tree of Life. Mm-hmm. And when you see those two things happening in the bookends in the Bible, it sort of places the story in context that we're somewhere in this great in-between of the exile and the return home and that the Tree of Life will mm-hmm. once again be open. And, and that's where the Bible starts coming to life, that mm-hmm. it's actually something that, that is speaking to our, our narrative today. Yeah, yeah, and you get the beautiful sense of the Bible truly is one story. And whether or not the specific stones that were taken out, the 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, um, you know, to be that 
that tangible reminder for generations to come. Whether those are significant, I think the place is significant mm. because the Jordan represented that crossing from um, really from wandering into the fulfillment of God's promise. Yes, and so it, it's the place of the of promise promise being fulfilled. And so when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Um, you know, Scripture says later on that he, that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ, and so um, it's significant, at least in the fact of of that realm of promise and fulfillment. That is one of the common threads of Scripture. And I would I would say that too, with with Joshua being about taking the land and the entrance into the promised land, that if you were standing on the the banks of the Jordan River what you'd be seeing is not this nice little stream that was sort of flowing. It was kind of down in this chasm, and it was rushing water. And if you put your foot in that river, that you were certainly to be swept away and drowned. And it was during the flood season, as the story goes. And with that, the invitation that God says is, stick your foot in the Jordan River. <laughs> and and it, the text literally says that until they fully committed, until they have stepped yeah. in towards the river, at that moment, the waters parted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so they had to put their full trust in and full faith that God would deliver and in stepping on those waters, then the waters part, and now that was the way into the promised land, mm. uh, teaching us that the way into God's kingdom is always one of full trust and full surrender. That's right. And now you have Jesus in the Jordan River yeah. and giving us the way forward, one who fully surrendered himself to the Father as well. That's right. That's right. Uh, so well put. That's not our default, is it? Stepping in uh, with full faith. <laughs> you think it would be after doing would, it a few times in would, life, right? Yeah, and then you, you, you just forget so. the next day. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, I yeah. forget the next day. What about I, later that afternoon? Well, yeah, <laughs> <couple> hours. <laughs> yeah. How do you get to the next day? Yeah, it's really true. <laughs> no, it's amazing how tight I hold on to life and, and just fail to surrender so often on a day-to-day basis. But that's that, that Pauline invitation, I die daily, right. mm-hmm. is what he says. And, and that's a tough thing to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, here's a verse before we go to break. Uh, Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, on your part... Live at peace with everyone. Mm. If possible, mm, yeah. on your part, live at mm. peace with everyone. Do mm. mm-hmm. mm. you want the verse before that, or do you want to make a comment on this verse? Well, that's one of the things I love about the Bible. I appreciate it's so honest and practical because, I mean, the sad reality is, I mean, it's it's possible to be at peace with, with everyone that it, it does take two for there to be reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there has to be a mutuality there. Um, there doesn't have to be, um, there can be forgiveness. So I can forgive you if you've wronged me, Bill, which you haven't, at least not yet, by the <laughs> Thank way. You. Um, but it, it does take the, that, that mutual recognition of, of mm-hmm. wrong for there to be reconciliation. So I think it what I love about that is it focuses first on if there's a problem and there's an issue, um, I'm at least always a contributor of it, a contributor. So it's focusing and saying, okay, before I blame somebody else that you're the problem, it's saying, okay, what's my contribution here? And um, and to be at peace, again, that's not the absence of conflict, um, to be peacemaking. It's it's really to have a fullness of, of, of true, of life, of wholeness, of relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a part in both hurting that and hindering that, but also part of helping heal. But it does take more than just my effort. Mm-hmm. Let me back up just a little. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Mm. Boy, that that is an invitation, isn't it? Oh, that, is it ever? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, there's so much in that, so many different things, just on a daily basis that I that I find it hard to walk in. Or it's not my default, to your point. I don't just mm-hmm. automatically walk in peace with everyone, trying to think with wisdom as easily. But but what a way of life. It, it, that feels like a free way of life. I feel like my soul would be unencumbered if I mm-hmm. could live that kind of life. Yeah, that's a great thought, Peter. All right, let me take a little break. Guide Talks Underway, let us know what you'd like us to discuss. We're open to uh, anything you uh, would like to 
talk about 877-93-FAITH, 877-93-FAITH. We'll be right back. today, but I'm not sure where else you'd want to be. You're listening to the Guy Talk, Dr. Peter Kapner, Pastor Justin Jepson. We're open to whatever you would like us to discuss. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. 877-933-2484. All right, gentlemen, in James chapter 1, this is such a powerful book. Um, we're supposed to do what the Word says. Don't merely listen to it. Then we'll be blessed in what we do. It's kind of easy to read, but not do, huh? Yeah, I mean, I certainly have lived out the journey where I've checked off the Bible list thing and, and read the Bible a little bit, but uh, we talk about forgetting two hours later, you know, how often does that that happen? But I, I think at the same time, I think where I failed most miserably in my life is that I will read something and even maybe be convicted by it, and then I'll try to go put it in practice, but give it about 24 hours, and it's it's completely out of practice again. And And I think... It's been an invitation to me, and, and Justin, I know you work in a lot of these areas too, when we use sort of that, what's becoming in my mind, kind of this tired or cliched phrase of spiritual formation, it, I think the invitation really is is that uh, how can I bring my attitudes and my values and my dispositions in alignment with that which I'm reading, so then what I do is naturally coming from those places. And you can't do that work without God's Spirit uh, doing that work in you to actually transform you. And I think that's the heart of spiritual formation is not just sitting down and doing a bunch of disciplines and, and trying to kind of work that into your day. It really is. I need to put myself into the hands of the potter and I am the clay and he needs to shape and form me so that that which I'm doing just becomes part of my actual character. Mm-hmm. Because then again, that's a free life in the sense it just is coming from me. I begin to love naturally or speak truth naturally, those sorts of things, as opposed to always trying to apply it, apply it, apply it. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't work out my salvation in that way in, mm-hmm. in, in these kind of times. So. Yep. Yeah, no, that's so, that's so well said. And I love, you know, the, the, what goes on later on in that paragraph, it says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty mm-hmm. and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And, you know, I think it's, we'd love to have Bible answers and Bible knowledge, but I think there's a sense in true Bible knowledge. Um, it, it, there's a knowledge of knowing of doing, of yeah. actually putting into practice. And, you know, uh, in, in the realm of spiritual formation, I was actually just having a conversation with a student earlier today that there's a difference between reading the Bible for God something that I feel like I have to do for him and reading the Bible with God. Mm -hmm. And to remember that one of the ways that we spend time with God is reading his word and, and allowing that word to go at work in our lives to bring a transformation at the heart level. But ultimately at the end of the day, it's not meant to present information, but it's, it's to present a way of life by which we follow Christ in. And that takes action and it's not a, I think we individually, what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's interpreting this in terms of, of our doing in the context of our connection to a community of faith and those around us. Yeah, agreed. And, and James goes on to write later in the book in James chapter two, especially where he talks about faith without works is dead and sort of this mm-hmm. connection. And that, that can be a scary passage for some, the idea, well, I've got to somehow go work it all out. But all it's really suggesting is that if you have a living faith active in your life, it's going to manifest itself in some way. Faith mm-hmm. being the leaning into and the trust and the belief 
that mm-hmm. God really does then begin to reshape you and work within you, and what begins to come out of you are just sort of the natural works of that, as, mm-hmm. as your attitudes and values and dispositions and interests and all of those things begin mm-hmm. to shift in more alignment with the kingdom, you sort of just begin to leave, live this free life uh, of giving things away. And that, that's what faith does. It's not the idea of, well, I've got to prove that I have faith by a bunch of works again today. It's, it simply is leaning right. into, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Can we measure the effectiveness of our study time by our behavior and attitudes? I would Gosh, think that'd think be a so. reflection, wouldn't I, it? I think so, for sure. That's kind of what we're talking about here is that, mm-hmm. you know, our, our general attitudes give rise to our behaviors. And and I think certainly, I, I mean, I can think of lots of times in my life where I've gone through the rote ritual of something, whether it's going to church or, or reading the scriptures or whatever it is. And uh, it's utterly empty and meaningless at that point. But mm-hmm. but there, it, it's almost impossible to interact with God's spirit and not come out of that changed in some sort of way, which happens as we read his word, for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you arrive at or choose to be content? Hmm. <laughs> Both. Yeah, I, I think part of it's the way that we posture posture ourselves of you know um, uh, in the Word. You know, just to piggyback off of something you just said, Peter. That I, I think Bible Bible study ought to lead to to Bible experience. And what I mean by that, um, Jesus said to a group of Pharisees in John five, He said that you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But what you fail to recognize is that it's they that testify about Me, and yet you fail to come to hmm. Me. And I think no one in the Gospels who was confronted with Jesus left the same. They, they were forced to make a decision. And so I think there, there needs to be change. But I think that that contentment, ultimately the Word of God leads us into an encounter with, with, with God himself. And that, that contentment, I, I think, arises out of continuing to posture ourselves before God in humility and recognizing that he, he is the one who is enough. So I, it is a choice, but it's a choice that's... Um, uh, in cooperation with God's grace, I think sometimes we look backward in hindsight and say, oh, I, I am more content. So, yeah. you know, it doesn't just happen. I choose content, therefore I'm content. It, there's a rhythm that that we practice that I think fosters that contentment. Yeah, I think so too. And, and you, I, I'm thinking of that passage in Philippians uh, chapter 4 where it talks about, I've learned the secret of being content in all mm-hmm. things, right? And, and when Paul is referencing that, and now we're back to some of these scriptural themes, it actually ties into the passage from Jeremiah 29 that's so familiar in our culture mm-hmm. about, I know the plans God I know the plans you have for me, declares the Lord, plans to prosper me. And that word prosper actually is the same word as contentment. And what contentment means is that your soul is at peace and there Mm -hmm. is wholeness in the midst of whatever circumstances you find yourself. And Mm so um, even in the greatest tragedies of life, God promises that he can give you a sense of wholeness and peace in the midst of them. It's not circumstantially dependent. And so Mm -hmm. in answer to your question, Mm -hmm. Bill, I don't know. I mean, I think you, the, the choice that you might have to make is a recognition that you can't find contentment from the circumstances of this world, but God can provide a sense of peace in the midst of whatever circumstances in which you find yourself. Mm-hmm. I like that. Thank you. Peter, you said something a couple of weeks ago, which has been stuck in my brain, and I'd like you to talk about it some more, if you don't mind. And it, it was inspired by uh, Ephesians chapter one, which I'm working on as a memory of chapter and it talks about when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised mm. Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing mm-hmm. our inheritance. So we yeah. just have a small little deposit. However, that deposit is enormous because it's our eternity <laughs> and it's it the is. Holy Spirit. But when you just talk about a deposit, that's not the full amount, is it? No, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of getting a care package from home is what we get. 
uh, when that deposit comes. And the idea being that our actual home is in heaven Mm -hmm. and to be lost. And we like to talk about what it means to be lost or that there's people in this world that are lost or those kinds of ideas. But I hesitate to say that um, the equivalence of loss is that means somebody's in hell or something like that, although clearly that might be part of the deal. But if you're in hell, you're not actually lost. You sort of know where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be lost mm-hmm. is that you've forgotten where your home is. And, and our home is actually in heaven, and we're citizens of heaven walking through an earth that is not actually our home. And in those places, when we yield and give ourselves to Jesus in the ways that Ephesians 1 is describing, he gives us this incredible gift. I mean, it really is a care package from home. Uh, but in this case, it's a, it's a little slice of our future in heaven that comes crashing into mm-hmm. our time and space. It's the, it's the very ways of life in heaven that become a deposit, and they seal us with the Spirit in that so that we can continue to walk through as aliens in this strange land mm-hmm. towards our actual home and have something uh, of faith and substance in the midst of it that carries us through. And so, I mean, Justin, even as you lose your grandmother and the pain that it, that is when the Scriptures witness to the idea that we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope, mm-hmm. that hope that comes in the midst of grief is another one of these care packages that mm-hmm. reminds us of our actual home, and we don't feel as lost as we otherwise might when we lose somebody, if we lose them without hope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think the other idea is that, that, that idea of, uh, it's, it's, it's a down payment the it same is. way that we have a down payment of our home now. It's, it's, it's a part of the fullness of what's to come. And I think b- back to that listener who asked the question about Joshua and the promised land, that, that, that discussion, even Israel, when they were going to the promised land, it says that even, you know, all, all the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They're actually longing for a heavenly city. So yes. there's a sense in which any good thing that we have here on earth is just simply a foretaste of the fullness of what's to come. It, it's why C.S. Lewis describes in his Narnia books that we're living in the shadow lands. Mm. To use that phrase, mm. these are simply shadows of that which is to come. Anything that's good in this earth is good in that way, but it is simply just a shadow. We're seeing through a glass darkly. Then we will see face to face. And so when we try to find our contentment out of the things of this world, which, oh my word, I do that way mm. too often, the reason why we always come up short is that we don't actually belong to this world. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why contentment has to come from a different source. It has to mm-hmm. come from this deposit of our future inheritance mm-hmm. <clears throat> in which God moves in and among us. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and later on, just right after that, I love after Paul talks about the, the, the fullness of the inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory, Paul goes into his first of second prayers asking for the Holy Spirit's illumination that we would know um, the glorious inheritance that Jesus has yeah. in the saints. So in other words, it's not just about our inheritance that we have that we have a down payment, but actually we are his inheritance, which mm. that flips the whole thing and it, that blows our minds and how, how, how Jesus re- views us and how when he came and, and how the cross was the, really the sign, the sealing and the delivering of that future inheritance yeah. that he will take, which is people, it's the saints. Mm-hmm. Another smart listener said in Philippians 2.1, Paul states, I've learned to be content. It takes practice and self-discipline to yeah. focus on what is eternal, what we now experience and what we shall have, not on what we don't have now. Well, I think that that just feeds right into what we've been talking about, right? I mean, to have the perspective of a future home and yeah. to this life, that's, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I guess I learned early on that salvation is a present possession. Yeah. And I, I think it's lovely that you talk about it as a care package. I mean, it's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about. If you have a subject or a passage or something you maybe read in the news, you'd be interested in getting a perspective on. We're open to just about anything. We'll do our very best to try to answer whatever you send our way. The number to text is 877 933 2484. If you don't have a computer or a smartphone, you can certainly try calling us as well. We'll do our best to take a call as well. 
877-93-FAITH. at unwsp.edu slash nursing. All right, we're back with Guide Talk. Thanks for uh, being with us today. Hope you are enjoying the hour so far. Let us know with questions. 877-93-FAITH would be the place to go to text. Um, all right. Here's uh, another question. I'm still in the book of James. Talks about in um, James 2, warns us about showing favoritism over the poor and succumbing to just judging them. Mm. And how are we doing about showing greater mercy to the poor or the downtrodden? Wow, that's a, I mean, that's a big question. <laughs> Seems like there's more and more of them nowadays, too. Yeah, it does. And, and certainly in Jesus's day, if we were to walk back in that context, there's a sense in which the poor sort of deserved it, was in people's psyche, in people's mind, that somehow they must have had some sort of hidden sin, or even the sin of their fathers or mothers had been passed down, and so they're sort of stuck in, in a lot. So it's a pretty revolutionary passage that James is suggesting, and, and obviously what Jesus came with, that uh, we should actually be caring for the poor and not discarding the poor, that... Uh, again, in the midst of a broken world, um, to to walk out the journey with a lack of resources. And uh, I know my wife, Hallie, taught in North Minneapolis for quite some time, and I, I was staggered the first few times I visited the school with just the sheer lack of resources available and what people had to do in order to sort of simply get by. And And I think there's a lot of generalizations, unfortunately, until you have some of the lived experience, but we would meet single parents that had literally three jobs working uh, one, two, three, and they would still come to the conferences uh, mm. and the parent-teacher conferences. And, and it was it was humbling for me at the very least. And I think when you start getting exposed to the lived experience of others and it goes out of a headline or a theory and into actual life is when you have an opportunity to develop some authentic compassion as you start walking in somebody else's shoes. Mm. Yeah, and I think this stems back to, you know, talking about a faith that works or a faith that actually yeah. is working itself out because, it, you know, he says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins to describe the outward appearance of, you know, the the, the, the rich and fine clothing and jewelry and then, and then those in the you know, shabby clothing. And really it's getting after the heart. And, and, and we don't know, someone might be maybe rich externally and materially, but they might be very relationally poor. And impoverished. There's more than one ways to be rich. There's more than one ways, to, more than one way to be poor. And so I think James is is really saying it's looking at trying to see what's underneath the surface and looking at the heart as God does, not as man does. And I think that's that's hard to do, and we don't do that well. We because external is what we see right away, and then we have certain stereotypes. We have different unconscious biases, and we see certain things that'll bring up different uh, prejudices, prejudgments. And so I think it takes wisdom and discernment and, and patience uh, to be able to see beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. Here's a question. Should the Astros title be removed? <laughs> oh, I like this question. Ooh, this is the baseball, yeah. you know, related to the science stealing scandal in which yeah. obviously, right? Yeah. They, I, I, I think yes. I mean, I, I think it'll forever be sullied. I don't, I don't think there's uh, – they're talking with one of the former Houston Astros 
that's now for another team. And he said he's not even certain he can ever put on the championship ring again, knowing that it had wow. been sullied. So I think at the, when you're at that point, which makes sense, that it's probably time to vacate it uh, and get rid of the title. They've done it for lesser offenses to other teams in, in different sports for sure. Yeah, what message are we sending kids right. if we don't? Mm-hmm. Which is probably not going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't appear to be, but there, no. boy, there's been more blowback from Major League Baseball players, when, which is usually such a close fraternity of people, and they hardly ever will turn and, and bite at one another. It's been amazing to read the headlines about how frustrated the other Major Leaguers are. So from that sense of momentum, it's at least possible now. Yeah. I tell if they don't get the title removed from them, I would really hate to be the Astros on oh, their boy. opening game. Those fastballs are coming spring. towards the ribs right there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sure. going to be a rough yeah. next season for it them. Is. It might be yes. really, yeah. Yep. So. Probably will. Another question that just came in, the concept that God is a trinity was developed during the 4th century councils. Why is the trinity considered so important when Jesus, the disciples, and Paul never taught it? Hmm. Is that true? I don't know if I'm buying that. Yeah, well, I think they were they were wrestling with a concept that it already, was already in play, the trinity. It wasn't like developed necessarily in the 4th right. century, but uh, you can even read through some of the ancient Jewish writers pre-Jesus, and I think there's a misconception that the Jews believe that only there was God the Father. When you read Genesis 1, it's pretty clear that the Spirit was hovering and the Word was there and yeah. God the Father mm-hmm. was creating. So mm-hmm. so Trinitarian ideas predated Jesus for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think the importance of it is the relationality that we see in the Trinity, that we are relational beings by nature. And I think it's one of the great unfortunate realities of sort of Western individualism is that we see ourselves as independent from one another. Um, but if you have love as the sort of pulsating heartbeat of God's kingdom, then that requires relationship in order for love to be in play all the time. Mm-hmm. And so the Trinity itself is this beautiful relationship of other-centered love. And, and I think in that, then we see a model of how it can be with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that tr- the word Trinity actually isn't in Scripture. And I think it was the early church father, Tertullian, that used the word Trinitas, Trinity, as a deduction of Scripture's teaching over the nature of God. And uh, Scripture is chocked full of these triadic passages. So if you look even just in the in the, the baptism of Jesus, we're talking about right. that. Right. It says you know Jesus came out of the, the out of the Jordan, and the Spirit descended as a dove, and then the voice of the of the Father came and pronounced His blessing on His beloved Son. You look at the Great Commission um, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I think it was a way that the early church was trying to make sense as a description of the the Bible's teaching uh, about God that was always held. It just, the terminology didn't come until later, and it wasn't later affirmed. I think it was the Council of Athanasius in the 4th century, um, which showed up in some of the early church creeds. Yeah, and I think it's always a great danger to, to suggest that just because Jesus didn't talk about something must mean it's not important. Uh, and uh, and in that, I mean, I, just, we, I use this example with my students quite often, is, you know, Jesus never said, thou shall not take cocaine. And yet we, we pretty much know it's a terrible idea mm-hmm. to do that. And so, so to read the scriptures through what is not there and somehow make that normative uh, is a bit dodgy at best. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justin, what you just said about uh, the, the presence of the Trinity, when Jesus was baptized, when the heavens opened and the dove descends and the voice of God says, this is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased, pretty much uh, that's a recipe for going out into the world in strength. Mm. When kids hear that from their dad, really I love is. you, you're mine, yeah. I'm proud of you. Proud of you. Yeah. Um, and if you mm. don't hear that, you can spend your whole life trying to prove something yep. yeah. 
or searching for your dad's approval. Yeah, you yeah. really How important can. is that? It is, yeah. well, and you're, you've been referencing James a little bit throughout this hour, Bill, and, and, and one of the passages from James that is very compelling to me is that the tongue has the power mm-hmm. to bless and to curse. Mm-hmm. And, and I think about there are active thoughts in my mind and in my heart, even for maybe 20, 30 years ago. Somebody said something maybe in passing or somebody said something relatively harsh, and that still sort of has an active right. power in my life, whereas the, con- uh, the reverse of that is if somebody does offer a blessing that way, those words also persist. They also abide. They're things that I can go back to. So mm-hmm. I think, again, sometimes I underestimate how powerful just speech can be to create reality in somebody else's life. Yeah. And that's a powerful thing about our, our own baptism, that even if we have not heard that from maybe our, our earthly father or right. our parents or, you know, maybe whoever, maybe was our primary caregiver, coach, teacher, influ- you know, someone who was had a key influence in our life, that that realm of a believer's baptism it pronounces that same blessing that God the Father gave God the Son now is actually upon us, mm. that he looks upon us and says, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased because of what Christ has done and that you have been united to him. And that's, that's powerful. Um, and, and, and again, we need, we need others in our lives to incarnate that, to right. reflect that voice, to affirm that voice. But even for listeners and maybe are saying, I haven't heard that, to know that God the Father thinks that way, Mm -hmm. says that about you and over you in Christ. Mm -hmm. What are some of the practical dangers of a faith life without deeds? Well, uh, hypocrisy. (laughs) (laughs) That that seemed to rank right up there. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure, right? Well, and I I think, too, it's... um, we we were talking about this at one point that I think it, it, it wrongly represents tragically Jesus to a watching world. Mm-hmm. So if they if they judge Christ by Christians that have say that they have faith and they have a profession of faith and, and they're not acting that out, and we, we all have a gap between what we declare mm-hmm. with our mouths and what we demonstrate with our lives, but um, it takes humility to say that that's true. It takes hypocrisy to deny that truth. And so I think that lack of humility hurts the church's witness of, of who Jesus is to the world. Yeah, I, I really do understand the impulse to sort of want to withdraw from the world. And I think even strategically at times to have a faith life that is absent of maybe deeds in the world, if we kind of go that direction with it, that was needed in some of the monastic movements where otherwise the preservation of the faith would have been at risk for future generations. But but the it's not currently in that way, but I still have the impulse, right, to withdraw at times and just sort of get out of Dodge for quite mm-hmm. some time. But, but our lived faith out in the world is what gives people the picture of Jesus in this world. And, and it's too much of a cliche to say, well, gosh, you know, we can't see God, but we can see him through his people, except that that's true. It, 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 it really, we are the ambassadors of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. We are the very representation of the light of the world. That's mm-hmm. what we're meant to be. Or his body. And so mm-hmm. absent of his body, who is going to be able to shine that light? Mm-hmm. Which is why, you know, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. Right. And I mean, which is why when we're saved, God doesn't just zoop, suck us up to heaven. <laughs> you know, he leaves us here because we're new creations created in, to do good works. God's prepared beforehand and for an advance. So ultimately, we're, we're walking in disobedience to our created and recreated purpose if we're if our faith is not um, uh, fueling good deeds. Yeah. Second Corinthians 6.15 talks about not being unequally yoked. When you hear that, do you mostly think of marriage or do you also think of business? Yeah, I think, Bill, we... 
the idea of a yoking, right, is that you have two oxen that are harnessed together with the same harness, and the only way that the the chariot or the carriage or the plow or whatever it is that they're pulling can move forward effectively is if two people are desiring to walk the same pathway forward. And, and if the oxen try to start moving opposite directions, it tears apart at the very fabric of the harness. And so the idea of being equally yoked means that you are serving the same kingdom in this life in some kind of way so that you can move forward together and do the work that is ahead of you. But I do think that it can apply to any relationship. Certainly we, we hear it for marriage all the time. Um, but I, I think even in marriage at times, you go through seasons of being unequally yoked where it just, it's marriage is up and down and, and, uh, and it can be filled with some highs and some lows. And in those places, sometimes the husband and the wife can begin to sort of move different ways from one another. And that is always an invitation to say, what's happening? We need to sort of become equally yoked again in that way. But that's true in friendships. It's true in business. It's true across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what this is not saying is to not have relationship right. with those that aren't believers, right? Exactly we know that's right. not true, but it's to have that that sense of you know, there's in 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 this passage or in that chapter, there's covenantal language that's being talked about. So it's not having the a binding agreement, you know, with those that are operating from two different worldviews, and that can cause a lot of friction, friction and a lot of danger. For sure. Another question from a listener: uh, My husband is following his dream to start his own business. Mm which isn't very successful yet, there's often on earning. How do I support respect my husband while helping him to see the need to provide for the family? Mm-hmm. There's that entrepreneurial spirit out in the world, yeah. which is yeah. a, a risk taker. <clears throat> right. And that's not good for someone who likes security. Yeah, it's tricky, especially when I think the stats are what that uh, only five percent of all small businesses last that they, you know, so it is, it's a high risk, risk maneuver. I, Boy, that's tricky without knowing the sort of the different details of the relationship. I don't have a one-size-fits-all answer to that other than to sympathize with that idea that I think as long as you've made the decision together in life when you're in a married couple and you said, we're going to step forward together, we're going to jump into this pool together, uh, then come what may, whether you succeed or fail, it it, um, removes the opportunity for resentment and bitterness. But if somebody kind of goes Pontius Pilate on the whole thing and just washes their hands of the future and the situation, um, that, that is where you can really open the door for some bitterness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a little break. We still have time for a couple of more questions. Let me know what they are. 877-93-FAITH, 877-933-2484. Be right back. fun during the break, too, don't we? Yeah, breaks are great. (laughs) Yeah, I wish you could be part of that. That's awfully fun. Dr. Peter Kaffner and Pastor Justin Jepson are my guests today at Guy Talk. Let me know. We still have time for a question or two. Uh, Otherwise, we're going to go a little instructional here. Um, 786 times in the New uh, Testament is the word sin. Of course, that means to miss the mark. We also hear words like transgression and iniquity. They're not all the same, are they? But they're not. But Justin, I, I, this one escapes me. I know I've, I've looked at this in the past, but I don't know what the difference is. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lean on you and your double O seven ness right now to, to sort this one out for I'll us. I'll set this up for you, Justin. <laughs> yeah. To transgress is yeah. to choose to intentionally disobey. Yeah, transgression is willful trespassing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, one of the helpful distinctions, too, at least between sin and uh, transgression. So it's a sin of that idea of missing the mark are, are sins of, of omission. So it's that's not doing what we ought to do, whereas transgressions are sins of commission, and that is willfully doing what we uh, should not do. And so th- that idea is that sin involves not just what we do do wrong, but mm-hmm. also what we don't do right. And so, um, which is... You know, uh, to take this all the way back to the garden, there's there's a question either. What was the first sin? Was it even Adam eating the fruit or was it Adam, was it a sin of, in other words, a sin of commission or was it a sin of omission where Adam and Eve um, or Adam seeing Eve eat the fruit first and knowing that that was wrong and not stepping in and intervening and stopping it? Yeah, and and I think that's, yeah, there's certainly ancient prayers you know, of asking for forgiveness for those sins of omission, those things, those things that we're not aware of in our life. And, and I think one of the differences, too, is that sin is often described as not just something that we do, but an active power that is seeking to further enslave us. And so I think some of the ways in which these things work together is you might commit a willful act of wrong, but then the rippling implications in your heart and in your spirit. Um, so if you've introduced the seed where now you don't really have control over the impact in your life. And it begins to sort of change your attitudes and your dispositions. It fractures your relationships. It's a, it's a power at work that we need to be um, released from. And so Paul talks about this sort of thing. He's like, I get to the point where the very good that I want to do, I can't do because there's this other power at work in me right now uh, that is enslaving me and making my, sub- my body subject to this death, this misery of the soul. Mm-hmm. And so a wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from that? And so, yes, the transgressions are part of it, but the sin, I think, is often an act of mm-hmm. power. And, and if I remember right, iniquity too, I mean, it's, it, that's also talking about the, the, the nature of not just the acts we do or don't do, but the one doing it so that we're living mm-hmm. in iniquity, that, that sin is not just acts or uh, things that we do or don't do, but it's actually a nature that we have until we are recreated in Christ. It does say that to, to commit iniquity is to continue without repentance. Oof. David's sin with Bathsheba that led to the killing of her husband Uriah was iniquity. Mm. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. That is terrifying. Yeah, it yeah, really it? is. I mean, you know, but but you can see the pattern, right? And when we talk about even some of the language of the power of sin, you the, the text says often that you've become dead to sin. And I think the more that you do iniquity or just willfully resist Jesus's voice, his wooing voice in your life, where Jesus says, if today you hear my voice, don't harden your heart, mm-hmm. and you continue in this willful iniquity, eventually you sort of just become dead to all of it. You you no longer have the contrast of what would be a life uh, that would be consistent with God's kingdom versus not. You're just dead. Here's a question. My wingman Terry said, should Christians watch mainstream Hollywood entertainment, <laughs> movies or streaming services like Netflix or Amazon? Hmm. Well, my approach to this would not to be overly, you know, dogmatic. And I think Christians can have differing convictions on maybe what they would deem tolerable or what they, um, you know, would allow into their home. But I think it's also uh, we have to be careful about what we, what we consider entertainment. Yeah. And and I think it's it to to be uh, discerning enough to know that that this doesn't just have this isn't just something that we're watching or viewing, but this does impact me at the soul level. And 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 and, and behind every I like to say in every cinema, there's a sermon, you know, other, there's a, there's a movie, there's a message behind every movie and, and to be able to uncover. So I think if you're going at it from that point of view, not just to simply be entertained as a passive listener, um, but to be able to engage and actually think thoughtfully and biblically about it, 
um, there are things that can be constructive Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and helpful. I appreciate that you're saying that not dogmatic necessarily. Right or wrong, Hallie and I have sort of taken the strategy to say that we're not here to preserve our kids from all of the darkness in this world. We want to be shepherds who walk with them in the midst of the darkness to be able to sh- uh, shine some light. But that doesn't mean that we expose them to everything all the time. There, There is some wisdom that is required to that. So the Super Bowl halftime show, it got started and Shakira started dancing and we just thought, you know what? we're going to get out of Dodge. We're taking kids out of the room. This is not something we want to expose mm-hmm. them to and, and have to try to undo. But by contrast, the other night, my daughter was reading the sort of the second saga of the old Percy Jackson series. And in that saga, there's one particular character who is a gay character. And so I sat down with her and we began to talk about it. And it gave me a great opportunity in the midst of a world where she's going to be taught about sex. The question, the only question is from where mm-hmm. she's going to mm-hmm. get taught from her, you know, friend group, from other parents, from school curriculum and stuff. And so it, that gave me an opportunity to talk about. So what do you think about this character? Why is this character doing what they're doing? And, and it was an invitation that in the midst of it, so we didn't protect her in that moment, but not every moment requires the same response. I think you mm-hmm. need some discernment about whether this is a time for protection or a time uh, to engage in the conversation. Yeah, that's right. All right. Here's another question. What is God's impact on the unbeliever's life? He works things out for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But what about those who don't love him? Does his power have no impact? Mm. Boy, that's a great question. Yeah, it is. Well, at least one thing that bubbles to the surface of my mind is, I mean, the power, uh, his impact, the very fact that they're alive and living and breathing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it says that, that God is, he's kind to to the ungrateful and to the unjust. He makes the, the rain to fall on the just and mm-hmm. the unjust. So mm-hmm. the fact mm-hmm. that they have life and breath and blood through their, flowing through their veins is is God's power at work in their life? It's part of you know what theologians call the general grace, mm-hmm. you know that that is given to everyone uh, as God creates and sustains um, everything. So, and, and, you know, and I think it comes there comes a point then where, you know, usually a crisis of life or a family member passes away and they're confronted with their own mortality that they can be begin to pull back and an, a window might open where they're able to see, hey, there's something else at work here in my life mm-hmm. that I have not been aware of. And there's usually an open door there for uh, the gospel to be shared. Yeah, I think it's one of the hardest things, right? Because love is something that must be freely given and freely received. And so somebody Mm -hmm. can resist that love. God's not going to force that love upon somebody so that they become a robot. It has to be a free interchange between two beings. And so, yeah, the impact is limited. But to your point, I don't think that that means that God necessarily stops wooing. Mm -hmm. At some point, to be honest with the biblical text, at some point he does withdraw his hand at times. He turns and, and them over to their he, sin. He that does. iniquity you know, <clears throat> continues. It, yeah. it, it, there's two ways he tends to deal with our sin in the text. And, and one way that's less common is he takes people out. And usually those are people that are in positions of power that are keeping other people outside of the kingdom. Uh, or if the entire generation has become so corrupt that the future has no chance. In those instances, God often will then move, not because he has to somehow prove his power or he's super angry. He simply is saying that I have to move these people aside to give the next generation to the other people a chance. And it's always done through sort of grief and disappointment and tears. The other way God handles it is when he just decides to give somebody over. And, and again, it's not... This is the idea of the prodigal son. This is the father mm-hmm. who stands there. And that father, when he let the prodigal son go, he didn't just go sit back in his easy chair and go, Humph, and I'll mm-hmm. show him. Mm-hmm. You know, he waited on the horizon and kept mm-hmm. looking for the prodigal son to turn. He still was waiting, but he did give over, knowing that the prodigal son was probably going to have to taste the fullness of his decisions. Mm-hmm. And in the pigsty of those decisions, when his son turned towards home, the father was waiting for him and actually threw a party instead of saying, I told you so. Yeah. All right, here's yeah. another a uh, question from a listener. How do you deal with a spouse who is not 
a convert. Whew. That sounds like we're unequally yoked. Yeah, no, right. it certainly is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boy. Well, the text is clear of, you know, that if uh, if the one who is the believer is not permitted at all to, to leave, so part of it is staying faithful and, and being in the marriage and to never underestimate the power of prayer. Um, I talked about my grandmother earlier on in the in the show here, and she prayed for her husband, for my grandfather, for 50 years. Ugh. And it wasn't until he was months before his cancer took his life that he surrendered control mm. over to the Lord. So don't don't lose hope, but and for sure do not go at it alone. Uh, to have a community of support mm-hmm. and help around you, and um, that'll be essential to allow the light of your life to speak to your spouse. I think about what it means to be a redemptive person in those kind of situations. To be redemptive uh, often just simply means that you're taking the wounds and bearing the sins on the present on behalf of the future, that Jesus really took those wounds and those sins and he took it all upon himself to create a future for everybody to be free. And he invites us into that redemptive journey. And it's one of the hardest things when our loved ones are maybe some of the perpetrators of difficulty in our life, but can, can you bear those wounds in the present on behalf of the future? You're entering into the really deep heartbeat of God in those moments. Mm-hmm. You know, we're out of time, and you know I like you guys because I've <laughs> saved this question for now when we have no time. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically, what does the Bible say about the, the Urim and the Thummim? <laughs> See? You would know that. You, you knew stuff, Justin, out of I, Obadiah earlier today. <laughs> so I'm throwing this one over to you. Th- you have the doctorate. I yeah, yeah. Like that's, yeah. It's really no, not paying I, off right now. Yeah, not it? at all. I'm giving, giving it all back. You yeah. know, that has always been a bit of a mystery. I've studied, yeah. I've looked into it, and it's just, I mean, that idea is just interesting. One of the ways of kind of, of, kind of casting lots of making a decision, but yet it, everything still belongs to the Lord, you know, and, and I... Uh, yeah, I don't. You, you stumped me. That's there, okay. I'm going to yeah. come back next time with a really great answer. On that. Yeah. I'm going to study that this next week. And week. I'm hearing the music right now, so I'm just yeah, going to stay you're silent. Just so yeah. happy. Yeah, it's yeah, over. No, I'm glad. Wow. <laughs> saved by the bell. But I have plenty of Old Testament uh, scholars on as well, so I can ask that again as long <laughs> as you great. keep listening. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for being with me today. And Guy Talk is now wrapping up. And I appreciate Dr. Peter Capster and Pastor Justin Jepson. Uh, the pastors, Tom and Tom, they were out today, but uh, we wish them well. And we hope uh, you are going to stay with us for hour two because we're going to have deep thinker thursday john and pam bloomer in the green room cannot wait to come in be back in a minute thanks for listening programming like this is made available through your support Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.